Shabbat Shalom. I'm uh, Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and we'd like to welcome you to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at Benai Shalom. And I hope that you've all had a good week, are ready for the Sabbath. Uh, let me share a couple of quick announcements with you. Um, we are in day 21. We're completing three Sabbaths of the counting of the Omer. All of that is leading to day 50 of the count, which will bring us to the festival of the Feast of Weeks. And we at Lion and Lamb Ministries here in Norman are planning a conference that weekend, uh, beginning on a Thursday evening and extending all the way to the final day of the 50th day on Sunday. Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend. And we'd love to have you come and be a part of the fellowship for it. We've invited in several speakers, time of fellowship and fun together. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of it, you can go online, register at ShavuotEvent.com. Shavuot, S-H-A-V-U-O-T, Event.com. And you can register there. I might also make mention that here in the last few days of April, I encourage you to register now, uh, going May 1, uh, certain discounts go away, and then we have to make some hard decisions, and so the price is going to go up a little bit on registration. So get it while it's good, and register, and we'd love to have you at the Feast of Weeks with us coming up here at the end of May. Uh, you're also going to find other information there about registering for Tabernacles, which is off in the fall. We'd love to have you come and join brethren from all over the United States and other countries to come out to join us here in Oklahoma. The weather's beautiful at that time of the year. Well, let me put it this way. The weather is variable. It can be virtually anything you want it to be during the course of eight days out there with us. But it's lots of fun for camping and uh, the camaraderie, the fellowship, the teaching, the worship, all of it. And uh, we're just trying to obey the commandment where the Lord tells us to come and rejoice before him. And he gives us a double commandment of that. So come and think about being part of Tabernacles. If you're new to the Messianic movement, you will, this is the event you, you want to definitely be a part of. And it will explain a lot to you uh, if you're able to come. We, I, I personally want to say thank you to all of you who have been helping us in our fundraising program to make improvements in our studio. Uh, we have met our goal, and for that I am especially appreciative. We are now in the process of going forward, being able to get the necessary equipment, rebuild the sets that we need to do. And the goal is to improve the broadcast for you and the quality of the broadcast and uh, make it even better for you to receive from us. So for that, we say thank you very much for helping us out with that. All right, those are our announcements, and without any further ado, let's go to Kiddush. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Adonai <laughs> 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam, borei pri Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. Now the chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us wonderful wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray, thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her as she rises while it's yet night to see about the ways of our household. And I pray that you would bless her and encourage her and strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessing she is. I pray that you bless her with your very best blessing and that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all things. And that I confess that I love my wife. So we thank you, Lord, for our wives. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. our daughters. Uh, 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 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance and grant you peace. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May He bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. May God make you good mothers and wives. May He bring you husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness. So hear our Sabbath prayer. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Aronai Hamvorach, Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha nedahar bachodesh Nohorat echilot Osefelei you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamruven Israel at Hashabat, La Sot at Hashabat, Ladortam, Burit Olam, Bene Vayom, Bene Israel, Othit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadonai, Et Hashmaim, Vayet Haoretz, Ovayom, Hashavi, Shabbat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. If it all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, Pachol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Ufkol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavcha. Veshinantam lavanecha, vetepadabam peshivtecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederechu shakpika, uvkumika. Ukeshatam la oto yadecha, veheyu la totvo binenecha, uketavtama mazuzo petecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 21, where our portion will begin for this week. As always, as you open the scriptures, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu etorato, baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-torah ha-amein. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Emor, which comes from the first words of uh, chapter 21 of Leviticus, where it says, The Lord speaks to Moses and says, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. That word speak is Emor. This, is, uh, this gives us an opportunity to talk about that word and the contrast that it has to such as if you were to speak something or if you were to command something. We had a Torah portion earlier in our Torah cycle that was entitled Zav, which meant command. And that was the portion about uh, the burnt offerings that when Moses was to speak to the priests and command them to give an offering each day. That was the Tamid offering, that the lamb, the burnt offering that was offered in the morning and in the evening of every day. And that that word was command. There seems to be, there is a difference in that tone, and we can take the opportunity to talk about the tones that one uses when you are speaking or trying to communicate something. That Hebrew word zav is made up of two Hebrew letters. It's made up of zade and a vav. The Hebrew word pictures of those letters, the the zade is a fish hook, and the vav is a nail. If you were to command something, it's almost, it's a little abrasive, if you will. It's a lot stronger. If you're ever fishing and you hook a fish, you have command over that fish. If you were to make a decree, you were to hammer, nail something to the wall, it would be, you're hammering a decree to the wall and you're making a command, a statement. Once you hammer that nail, you can't, you, you can remove the nail, but the hole is still there. The command has a lot more strength, power to it. This is in contrast to if we were to speak or to say something. The Hebrew word immor uh, is made up of three Hebrew letters. It is an aleph, it's a mem, and a resh. The aleph means strength, the mem means waters, and the resh means head. And what, So the word picture is the strength of the head waters. This lends itself to another picture that we can, that we can imagine is this. A river, a mighty river. You can think of any river that you've ever crossed or seen that is like a great river, whether it be at the Mississippi or the Nile River or the Jordan River in Israel. All of those rivers, the headwaters of those rivers, all come from a small spring. It is a small little trickle of water, and you can go to that place and you can say, this is the headwaters of this river. And you, it doesn't, 
it doesn't connect with you where it's like the river is great and powerful and, and waters a great number of people and people build cities along the river so that life can spring forth. But all of that begins at a very small trickle or a very small spring. But however, we talk about with the word of more strength of the headwaters. It's the same thing that anytime we have the power to speak something, we might, we might speak in a whisper. However, the words that we say have the power to change all manner of things in creation. You can change the way somebody thinks. You can, the words that you say can impact somebody way further down the line. Maybe even as time goes on, as time passes, something that you said years ago can have impact upon you today. And that's the word picture that we can look at when it says, Emor, speak. When we are trying to give this instruction, this is done in a way so that sometimes it's a more readily heard. It's more readily understood or that the subject that we're talking about here is something that we want somebody to take heart. We want them to take it to heart. We want them to think about it, ponder it. What's the reason for this instruction? So this is the introduction to this entire passage of Scripture. Something about speaking in kindness. And again, this goes back to our teaching on leprosy. What we say has a great importance. It has a great power. Uh, each and every one of us have a power within us to, if we say something, anything that we speak, the tongue is a powerful thing. It's like a fire that has the ability to help somebody. It also has the ability to cause great destruction. So as we get into our instruction for this week, let us always remember the things that we say and how things are spoken make an impact upon what is how it's heard and how it is received. This passage here is another one of those passages in Leviticus where it says to Moses, speak to the priests, to Aaron, to his sons. This is not to every man in the house of Israel. It's not to all of the children of Israel. So does that mean that these instructions, if I'm, I'm not a priest, if you're not a priest, are these instructions, are, are, are these not important for us to, to read or learn about? I beg to differ. This, these instructions, because we understand what the priesthood was, these were the intercessors between God and the people. These were the ones that served the Lord. They were called by God to be in the service of God. So the principles of what they are commanded to do can apply to those, anyone, if you find yourself in the service of God. If you find yourself any pastor, any minister, anybody who works in ministry, these are instructions that we can glean the principles from to learn and understand, take those to heart and understand there was an appropriateness needed by the priesthood in the service of God in the same way there's an appropriateness needed for anyone who is in ministry who serves God. And some of these instructions, they make a great amount of sense if we kind of compare them to a modern day example. The instructions follow is this. One thing that it says is that man is, these priests were not to defile themselves. They were held to a different standard than the common man. Now, that was the same ways that anything that you touched, if you touched a dead person, that you became unclean. And it says that this is a particular statute that was for the priesthood to not defile themselves, with the exception if there was a close blood relative that passed away, for them 
they could defile themselves. For them, they could touch, they could, they could go and, and grasp the, the body of their loved one should one of them pass, and that was okay for them. But anybody beyond that, they were to abstain so that they did not defile themselves. One of the other things, too, is that they should not make any cuttings in their flesh. They shouldn't harm the uh, edges of their beard. They were to look appropriately as some people would do, that they would mar their, their bodies, especially if they lost a loved one. That was a way that they mourned back in ancient times. One of the other instructions is this, that they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman. This is something that, this makes perfect sense in the modern day, where let's say you have a preacher, you have a pastor of a Christian church, and that pastor marries a woman that maybe has a negative reputation. Maybe she has a history of doing something of sin or some manner of behavior that is not appropriate, it's well known throughout the community, suddenly the respect for the preacher or the pastor suddenly comes into question because of who he chose to marry. This is a statute that was given to the priesthood that this is to not be a distraction in your homes, in your families. Do not let the person who you associate with who you marry or who member of your family, do not let that impact how somebody would view you. Because the priesthood was called to be most holy before the Lord. They had to do these services. I've said many times before that their job was boundary maintenance. They can't be pushing the boundaries of what is right and wrong, what is holy, what is profane, if they are to be above reproach and in in that service of the tabernacle. These are things that they had to watch out for. One of the other things, too, it says, gives the commandment, the daughter of any priest, she can't profane herself. She cannot play the harp because doing so profanes her father. This is the reputation of a man in leadership and the actions of his wife or his daughter having an impact upon the reputation that he holds in his standing within a community. These are instructions that make perfect sense for anyone who would find themselves in any leadership position, who would find themselves in any position to minister or to counsel with others. These are good words and good instructions for the children or for anyone to follow, even though these commandments specifically were given to the priesthood of the children of Israel. One of the things we're talking about here in the whole theme of the book of Leviticus is we're talking about holiness. We're talking about calling people out to be a holy people before God. That we've called these holy people to to be holy as the Lord is holy. We've also built a tabernacle and we've defined a sacred space in which God lives. So we have a holy people. We have a holy place, a location that has defined boundaries and borders. Later on in our Torah portion, we're going to go into Leviticus 23 with God's appointed times. And then we have holy times. Actual time frames that have a definitive start and an end that have that there is a holy time as well. So we're having all of these things come together, talking about holiness here in the heart of the book of Leviticus, that we're called to be a holy people. There is a holy place and a holy sanctuary where God dwells, and there are holy times and appointed seasons for that worship to take place. All of these things come together here in the midst of the book of Leviticus. And the, that instruction continues on that the whole reason for the priesthood to be holy was to not profane themselves and also to not profane the sanctuary in which they worked, to not defile it by their uncleanliness. 
And so in the same way also as we go to celebrate feasts, we do not want to approach the feasts in a cavalier manner as to profane the holy days that God has called for us to worship. We'll get into more of that as we get into Leviticus 23. The instructions continue for the rest of chapter 21 in Leviticus, talking about any man, any of the sons of Aaron, of any of the following generations, that if they were to have any defect before the Lord, that they were to not serve or approach the veil or do certain services of the tabernacle. These defects might be if they're blind, if they're lame, if they have a marred face. It says if they're a hunchback or a dwarf or if they have eczema or a scab or they're a eunuch or they have a broken limb. They were not to approach the Lord in the service of the tabernacle in a certain way. It does say they could come in, they could still partake of the bread, the holy bread, the holy offerings that the priesthood could eat. They were of the line of Aaron and they could partake of those things. But it says they are not to approach or come near to the Lord in those ways. This is talking about the Lord that there is a certain level of protocol that God calls for to be. That's not that we have something against people that have a deformity or have, have some sort of issue like that. We're, it's not that we're supposed to love them any less as if they're part of the family. But when it comes to the service of God, we are expecting the best. We are expecting the, the most holy, appropriate nature of everybody doing the work of the Lord because that's what God has called for it to be because of His holiness and how holy He is. We liken some of these same things, and I like to compare some of these same things, to my own household. To, and you might do so with your own household. That if you were going to have a guest over to your house, there is a level of appropriateness to which you will set up your home and prepare to receive the guest. And you, as the head of your household would have some rules and some stipulations. I've already said before, you wouldn't have your children come to the dinner table with dirty hands after playing in the dirt. You'd tell them to go wash their hands. Let's say you were to have a guest over, and we've talked about having good food, that make sure there's good and appropriate food that's on the table, that everything is right and appropriate. Let's say that you have somebody, there's somebody in your house, and let me just give this example here. Let's say you have a family member over, there's, a, there's another family member that happens to be in the house, and let's say they have a broken arm. Or let's say that they are, something about them is, is very distracting, if you will. If you were to have somebody come over and you were going to have dinner, you can picture the conversation going toward the person that's sitting across the table that has a cast. You're, you begs the question when you talk to somebody who's injured and you say, well, hey, how did you get that? How did that happen? How did you get that scar? How did you break your hand? What, it becomes a distraction to the conversation. Let's say you invited them for a meal and you had business to do with them and you had a discussion that needed to be had. If the conversation goes toward the distraction, toward the thing that is not supposed to be the focus of that meeting, of that convocation, then obviously it's hard to get the business done that needs to be done. That's why I believe this is here. Not that we have anything against anybody who would have this deformity, but you do not want any distraction taking place when someone is coming to serve the Lord and to worship the Lord. 
So that's one of the things that we do. Now, when we have somebody over, that sometimes if that's the way the conversation goes and we're talking about, you know, all of the things that are wrong with us and, and, and the issues that we have, that's okay in common speech and common conversation. People like that are welcome within amongst the community at all other times in all other places. But when it comes to the service and the business to do with the Lord, we have to leave it, we have to have a little bit more seriousness to it and a little bit more appropriateness to it as well. All of these continue on with um, anyone, if the priests become unclean in any way, shape, or form, that they are to be clean before they can come to the services and do the rest of the service of the tabernacle. All of these things are called by God so that these, so that everything, like I said, is right and appropriate for the priests who are the servants of God to have everything in order, everything in place. It's the same thing in your own home, like I've said before, is that if you have the house clean, there's food at the table, there's things that are ready to, to, to uh, the house is clean, everybody's clean, everybody's good, right? So what do you do next? When the house is clean, everybody's ready, you suddenly, I don't know if you've done this with your family, your spouse, you look at each other and be like, we should have somebody over. We should have a party. Once everything's clean, it's like, that's what we should do. And that's exactly what is the case once all of these things are covered. I should mention toward the end of chapter 22, the last thing that is instructed about things being right and appropriate is that any offerings that are brought to God, they also cannot be marred in any way. They can't be blind or have a broken leg or have any sort of defects. That any of the food that is offered or the offerings given, that it's not just something that you found along the road, it's not something that doesn't have any value, that everything is right, appropriate, and clean. Once all of those things in place that are in place, then it's time to have a party. It's time to invite somebody over. The house is clean. The kids are clean. The food's on the table. There's nothing greater than fellowshipping with another friend when you sit at the table. When you sit at the table all by yourself, by yourself eating food, it's better to share it with somebody else. If you have a whole lot of food at your table and you have just your family, oftentimes you get done with a meal and said, man, we made so much. We should have had somebody over. Our hearts, I believe, are desiring and are leading to being in fellowship with with one another. God made us this way. Man is not meant to be alone. We are meant to be together, to fellowship with one another. We have a, deep down, we have a heart's desire to be in a community, to be in fellowship. And the logical progression of the book of Leviticus goes right into that, into Leviticus chapter 23, where we have the appointed times. The times in which God says, hey, get together. Have a holy convocation. Get together with your family. Get together with your, with your fellowship, with your church, with your community on these days and have fellowship. Once, if you get everything right, everything is set, all the servants are clean, everything's right and appropriate, now let's have a party. And God knows this. God knows this is our human nature. So he gives us these appointed times for us to follow. It begins with the Sabbath and continues on through Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the holy convocations, the holy days. We call them holidays. But they are holy days before the Lord for us to get together and join with one another. Have fellowship. Have a community. Something that was is a question that I'd like for you to ponder, and I think that it's 
you don't want it to be this way, but in truth of fact, human nature, this is exactly the case. Would we fellowship with one another, even our own family members? Sometimes we don't all live in the same house, but would you fellowship with them if you did not have appointed times to get together? There are some families you've heard that might say, oh, yeah, it's like, yeah, we live, we live a little too far away. The only time we ever see each other is, uh, you know, birthdays and, and holidays. Birthdays or Christmas time or Thanksgiving or whatever it is. Some families don't get together unless they have those times to get together. If those holidays did not exist, if no one remembered any birthdays, would you fellowship? Would you still get together? Life goes on. Life gets busy sometimes. And I know I've been guilty of this before that it's like sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to remember to invite somebody over unless you have a reason to do it. Sometimes the last time you had somebody over was because it was somebody's birthday or because it was Passover or because it was, you, you did, well, you didn't really get together with anybody until last Sukkot. That was the last time you really saw any of your friends. Those are the appointed times. Now, logically, it makes perfect sense. That's what they're there for. At the same time, the, the root and the heart of every single one of those fellowships and every single one of those holidays is the Sabbath. It's something that takes place on a weekly basis. Weekly. In the Sabbath. Sabbath. You, 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 you take that time. It's one of the appointed times of God. One day out of the week, you are to have a holy convocation. That's what it says. And that's why many of us do go to that. We, we fulfill that through going to church or synagogue or our congregations, that that is a, it's part of the commandment to have a convocation. The, the definition of convocation is specifically a public meeting and assembly. Also, in some translations, it has to do with a rehearsal. A rehearsal, and this goes along with many of the things that we've said about the holidays, especially when it comes to Sukkot and also the Feast of Trumpets, that we're rehearsing for a future day when we can celebrate with the Lord. Celebrate with the Messiah. Sukkot is like the wedding feast of the Lord. The, the Day of Trumpets is about the resurrection, and we're looking forward to that future feast. So every time we celebrate those holidays, we're rehearsing for one that might come greater, that might be a wonderful blessing that we look forward to in the future. That's what all of these are for. We should meet together. We should fellowship together on a regular basis. We should not forget to do that. So for those that might be scattered about, there's, there's some that I know in the Hebrew Roots Movement and other believers that believe that it's like, okay, well, I got my family here and they don't like, so they don't like the way somebody else keeps the feast. They don't like that there's a, a national ministry that does a large event and they think that the, the convocation or the, the holy day is somehow, it's become too much. It's become like a, like a conference or it's become like some sort of worldly festival than it is supposed to be holy. So they go into the Word and then they read these things and so then they try to just do it on their own. And I don't want to offend anyone that would want to try and follow these things to the best of their ability on their own. At the same time, the commandment is to have a convocation with, to fellowship with one another. Nowhere does it ever say in the scripture that you're supposed to agree with everybody that you might fellowship with. If that was there, I, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way that anybody ever agrees 100% with anyone else that they fellowship, even members of your own family. That does not mean that we're not supposed to fellowship with one another. That we're not supposed to be with one another to share in those holidays and those times of rejoicing and worshiping the Lord. 
That's what the feasts are there for. That's, that's what it's about. I said already before that it's like that these were separate, set-apart times called by God. These holidays don't belong to man. They don't belong to us that it's all like, this is, no, this is my holiday and I get to celebrate it the way that I want to. Sorry, they're God's appointed times. They belong to the Lord. These are His times. We fall in line with Him. Whatever He wants to do across the movement, across people that believe in following Him, what He stirs in the hearts of the brethren, these holidays belong to Him. It's not anything that we get to decide. So we have to know and always align ourselves with what is the Lord trying to teach us? What is the Lord doing with each and every one of these fellowships? And we submit ourselves to that. That's what we do. We're to, And it has to do with the fellowship because every single one of these things are outlined by, by some kind of Sabbath, some kind of holy convocation that is to be a meeting. I want to point out also, there's many times in the New Testament that Yeshua... Is read. There's several passages in Luke, Luke chapter four, uh, verse sixteen, uh, chapter thirteen, verse ten, Mark chapter one, verse twenty-one, and there are some uh, many others as well. When it says that the Sabbath day came, as Yeshua walked to the earth, and he said the Sabbath day came, where did Yeshua go? What did he do? He went to the synagogues and he spoke. He went to the synagogue. Every single one of those passages says the Sabbath day came and he went, in, went to the synagogue. One of them says that it was his custom to go to the synagogue to, to worship. That was what he did. Now, if we want to stand up here in this belief system, in the Messianic movement, Hebrew Roots movement, and we talk about all the time about wanting to go back and do and live as Yeshua lived, then if you're going to do that, then every Sabbath day you should be at your fellowship and your congregation. That's what he did. Regardless of what they, their belief system was, because we looked there in the synagogues, those were probably Pharisaic synagogues of Jewish teaching and, and rabbinic teaching, yet he still went there and he spoke. That was his custom and that's where he went. Now we want to say, and many people want to put a divide between Yeshua and the Pharisees, and that Yeshua came to just do away with the Pharisees and argue with them and have everything to, uh, against them. Which is not exactly true. He did say, warned us of the leaven of the Pharisees, some of the things they might add, the traditions of men that they might hold to. While at the same time, Pharisees were the ones who were the most devout in reading the scripture and wanting to study and follow and learn what God said in his word, in his instruction. We tend to actually look at Pharisee as a bad word when in truth of fact, in ancient times, you would have liked to have been classified as that person who was devout in studying the word. That's what we want to be at all times. Yeshua went to the synagogues where they were as well and fellowshiped. So if you might find yourself at odds with a fellowship that maybe you went to and you don't like kind of how they do things, let me remind you that Yeshua went to those synagogues in the Sabbath day as it was his custom. And that's what he did during the Sabbath each and every week. That's something that we should strive to, to do as well. To go into the fellowship, into the community. You won't get along with everyone. But that is the custom that Yeshua followed. And we are called to have a holy convocation, a meeting and assembly with the brethren. Because it is not good for man to be alone. 
that goes for a single isolated family. It's not good for a single isolated family to just be alone. The fellowship with the brethren is sweet. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So what, let us remember that as we think about every Sabbath and every holiday as we go. And that is what we can learn for our, as the example from these holidays and these instructions. As I said before, this has the overview of all of these holidays, and there's a lot of teaching that can go into. You can spend a great amount of time on each holiday and everything that it represents and how it connects to other parts of Scripture and prophecy, which I don't have the time to do uh, here in this teaching. There is one question that I do want to cover. Shabbat shalom. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles now to First Peter. Uh, chapter 2, um, this week's uh, New Testament readings uh, goes hand in hand with the, this week's Torah teachings. If you recall, and Ephraim sharing with you, Imor uh, is the portion that talks about the restrictions on the priesthood, whom they could marry, who they couldn't marry, special rules for the Levitical priests, and then chapter 23, the one that really applies to all of us, is the appointed times of the Lord, explaining from Sabbath through Passover all the way to the Feast of Tabernacles. And, um, and there are many studies that have been done on that um, that indicate it's a picture of the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, the spring feasts are fulfilled when the Messiah came the first time, the fall feasts will be fulfilled when he comes the second time. So it's a great prophetic picture besides uh, each year it's part of our spiritual growth. It's part of the spiritual cycle uh, for us to mature uh, in our faith as, as believers. So let me take you now to 1 Peter 2 because Peter is going to be trying to make some very profound statements to define who are we now in believers? Because it's a natural question for a lot of Gentiles when they come into the faith. Well, am I really part of Israel? Is Israel part of me? I mean, how do I fit into the big picture of Abraham and his descendants? And what about all these things that are established in Israel, like the temple system and the priesthood and the kings? And, and how do I fit into all of that? Or is that even a part of me? Am I separate from that? Or what, what's the story? How do I fit into it? Now, Peter, as you know, was the apostle to the Jews. And, uh, and whereas Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. In the course of their ministry, Peter spent a lot more time ministering to Jewish believers and, and teaching them. Uh, and the, Paul spent a lot more time with the Gentile believers and encouraging and teaching them. However... I have something ironic to share with you. In this letter, and in this structure, um, Peter is actually talking predominantly to Gentiles. He's not talking to his fellow Jews. He's trying to explain, from being the apostle to the Jews, he's trying to explain to the Gentiles something that they are part of, that maybe they didn't realize that. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie that has come out lately. There's a, a movie uh, in, running around the movie theaters called uh, Paul the Apostle. And one of the things it does is it shows Paul in prison in, in Rome. 
And the story goes that Luke, who used to travel with Paul, comes and visits him and that they proceed to write a book together. That, that Luke actually writes the book and, um, and that, that's what's going on there. And they're emphasizing in the movie about how, and I'll just repeat what they say, that Paul is like the head of Christianity. That all Christianity is now hanging on what Paul says and does. And that's a very popular belief amongst uh, rabbis. You know, they, they don't believe that Jesus started Christianity. They think Paul started Christianity. Uh, and it's also a very popular belief in the old church fathers. The quicker they can get away with what Yeshua said and get focused on their interpretations of what Paul said, uh, it plays into them establishing the institution of the church as opposed to being part of Israel. It establishes them and their priesthood uh, as opposed to the previous priesthood and all that came with it. So it's ironic that... um, um, in the following ways. Peter's letter is being written to Gentile believers. Now, are you ready for this? Paul's letter in Romans is being written to Jewish believers. It's very clear that Paul's intent is trying to convince fellow Jews that are in Rome as to why the belief in the Messiah is completely consistent with the heritage that we have and the same belief that Abraham had. And so that's the nature of, of his argument and his intent. It's always been a little bit paradoxical. Peter should have written Romans and Paul should have written this letter. But it's the flip side of it. But I think it lends something to a deeper understanding of what's being expressed. I think it actually helps put the emphasis on it. By the way, Luke wrote the book of Acts, you know, which recounted the history of Paul's ministry and the early stages of the apostles and so forth. Um, Luke didn't write Romans. He didn't write any letters. He just wrote a historical book in the form of the book of Acts. So with that as a backdrop, and what I want you to take note of is that Peter's writing this letter, but, it's the, but the intended audience is not Jewish believers, it's Gentile believers. So with that said, let me begin to read to you from verse 4. And coming to him a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. Hold the phone, Mabel. What in the world did he just say to these Gentiles? He said, you're living stones that you're being built into a house, literally a temple. You're being built into the temple of God so that spiritual sacrifices can be brought to God, so it can be a house of worship, you know, before the Lord. I mean, these are all the metaphors associated with everything we've been learning about the temple from, um, from the previous teachings and what the temple was and the choice of the 
accoutrements and how everything was placed in the temple. And he's saying it's like you're a living stone. You're part of that. That's a very profound statement to say to a Gentile, a Gentile believer. Now, just for the moment, let's step back. Here I am. I just met my one of my new Christian brethren who's been following the Lord all this time. And I announced to him, and I said, well, that's very good news for you. I'm glad you're in the faith. You do realize, of course, that you are one of the stones that make up the temple that will be ultimately in Jerusalem where the Lord will live. That concept, that thought is absolutely foreign to him. We're supposed to be part of Jerusalem. We're supposed to be part of the temple. You know, and it's so they have a tendency when they read these words to kind of gloss over them and they just put stamp big metaphor, but who knows what that means. And they gloss over this. But I am here to tell you that what Peter is saying is incredibly profound. Let's go further. Verse six, he's going to quote from a scripture. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this one, this became the very cornerstone. The cornerstone is the reference stone for the building of the temple. So we're still talking about building temple. We're still talking about stones that go into making of the temple. Now, the verse that he quotes from here, this big powerful verse, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone, is a quote that actually comes from Isaiah 28. And if you would, I'd like to take you back to that so that you can get a, a better context of why that's such a powerful quotation for him to use. Why did he use that as his spiritual authority, if you will, for what is being expressed here? In Isaiah 28, by the way, I love Isaiah. In Isaiah 28, uh, beginning at, let me start for you. I want to give you the full context of this. Uh, let me start at verse 9 is when the paragraph setting really sets up for this. And here is what Isaiah is posing and as a question right off the bat. To whom would he teach knowledge, and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken for the breast? The obvious answer is no. What we're about to talk about is mature things. These are not things that just children pick up. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. Uh, the process of you spiritually learning and maturing in the faith is a little here, a little there. We don't come up to you, give you one central course, uh, discipleship in Yeshua the Messiah. Take this course. It's about four years long. You get this little certificate at the end, and you're now discipled in the Lord. doesn't happen that way. Because it's about life. It's about life experiences and about the, the stations of life that you go through. You're always learning about the Creator. 
You're always learning about you and your relationship with God. You're, you're growing, you're maturing the whole time. Now, the fascinating thing for us is that as mortals, we go from youth, toddlers, up to where we are in elementary ages, and we learn how to talk and relate, and then we get up into our adolescent things, we begin to develop an identity and relationship. Then we become a young person, and we're thrust into the world uh, and expected to behave uh, in a certain manner. And I always uh, have been sharing with people right now that if you're 19, you tend to be liberal. By the time you're 40, you're dyed-in-the-wool conservative. And we go through this, this transition. Um, and ultimately, up to, up past your 40, then you get up to your uh, elderly years, your 50s and your 60s. And if God is merciful to you and you extend into the ages of the age of sage and so forth, the whole time, what was happening to you spiritually? You were growing every step of the way. There's no cycle like in your mortal life where you get up to this point and then you kind of go down. Not spiritually. You start and it keeps climbing, it keeps climbing, it keeps climbing. And ultimately, it gets to the point where you get to be with the Messiah and the kingdom. There's... Now, a lot of us, you know, dip and wane and and so forth on our path. But the idea is that we're ever growing. Even when we're not walking up before, we're still learning spiritual things. It's just a constant flow of learning more spiritual concepts. And that basically, that's what Paul, or excuse me, Isaiah is telling us. This is what's going on. And these are the transition steps that we're all going through. And so he comes down to this point here in verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. But we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception." You know, you could take these words and apply it to every politician there is out there. They all think they're real shrewd and real smart, and they're covering up their actions and projecting something else. And you know what? They've played that game so long that the only people believing that is them. That the average citizenry knows they're just jerking us around again. And don't believe what they say because it's not the truth. You know, they're playing some of the game. They're just, you know, if they say something that sounds agreeable to me, they're just pulling my chain. Just, they know that's the way I think, that's what I am desire, so they act like they're going to do that for me. But it's bait and switch all the time. You know, and you only get burned on bait and switch a certain number of times before you don't even fall for it anymore. And, and the Lord is talking about the leaders of Israel doing the same thing to the people. He could come right down here and, and talk to the U.S. Congress and, and our government and describe exactly the same thing going on with us. Um, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. And your covenant with death shall be canceled, and your pact with Sheol shall not stand. 
When the overwhelming scourge passes through you, then you will become its trampling place. Let me hold there for a moment. There's a recognition on the part of uh, Isaiah here that mortals and men fall into the category, their leadership falls into the category of selling lies and basing other decision on lies and falsehoods. And a recognition that it's not going to work. So then the contrast is made. However, when we have the Messiah come, the Messiah is going to contrast them very dramatically in the following way. Whereas they were going around parlaying around lies and falsehoods, it says he is like the chief cornerstone firmly placed. Everything will now reference from him. It will no longer be your variable references. It will no longer be the issues that you want to talk about. It will be based on the truth of who he is, and he will be the chief cornerstone, and everything will be built in reference to him. For those of you who don't know a lot about masonry and uh, building with stone, um, there always is this cornerstone. You know, the mason will get it set, and he will measure off of it, both horizontally and vertically, based on that one stone. He'll use that one stone as his reference. And thus, when it gets done, we have a beautiful wall. Stone or brick or whatever, it's been done, and it looks right. The lines are straight. It stands up correctly. And the reason is that he didn't decide to put a stone here and to put a stone there, that there was one stone that became the reference for the whole wall, for the whole structure. And especially a cornerstone. Because it doesn't, it's not just the reference for one wall. It's the reference for the other wall that goes the other way. And that reference goes it continues to wrap around until the house is built. That one stone continues to be the reference for the mason as he continues to build. And essentially what Isaiah is saying here is, whereas uh, the leadership in the world that we are subject to, um, they like to set their own cornerstones. They like to set their reference stones. Let's reference off of me. And my, my campaign is going to be for this and so forth. And um, and let's be honest, I've, I've lived long enough that all the campaigning that you see is they've done polls and they've found out what you and I like or believe or think. And so guess what they feed us? What we want to hear. But how truthful is it? How real is it? Are they willing to pay the price to make those things happen? Because, by the way, everything of good and value has a price. There's no cheap good items, ideas. They all have a cost. And, oh, by the way, there's a whole bunch of other people out there doing their own thing, and they don't want to see what you're doing go through if you're a political leader. They, they just want to shut you down. Not too long ago, I was um, uh, interested in a fella that was running for Congress here that was from my hometown. And he wrote a, a, a fascinating book, which I read, uh, and I had the opportunity to go interview him. And in the course of the interviewing him and his book, 
Um, he was, of course, in the heat of, of uh, the political campaign. And I think the primary reason why he met with me was I wanted to meet and talk about his book. I think he met with me thinking I might be of some political advantage. I might be able to put a good word for, for, about, for him into a, a community. I could reach other people for him. Whatever the motives were, um, we got together and he proceeded to tell me about that he was up against um, a pretty strong political point, pointee. And I said, yeah, I'm familiar with him. And I said, you know, he has all the backing and the political parties behind him. And I said, you're kind of barking up a tall tree here. And he said, yeah. He said, they came to me and they wanted me to um, uh, agree to go and run in a different uh, district. And that they would help me if I was willing to go in that other district. I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, but I refuse. This is where I live. This is my home. This is, I want to represent this district. And I said, well, I think you're, you're very noble uh, in that regard. You know, I commend you for that. I said, you do know you're going to lose. I mean, any question about that? Because there's not enough of you that have that heart. There's not enough. And if you try to mobilize that amongst the citizens, well, he's going to have all kinds of counters to you. And he'll discredit you and play king of the mountain and want to throw you off the mountain. And that's the nature that keeps good men from being able to go forward and lead. It's a, they're a bunch of liars. And if you're not willing to go along and be a liar like them, you're just not going to succeed in getting into politics very well. Um, and that's the reason why politics is such an aggravating subject. Um, there's a tremendous amount of falsehoods involved. Now, I mention that only because I want to stress that the Messiah is different. He's a chief cornerstone. He's rock solid when it comes to truth and justice. And things can be built off of him. And he's not variable. He's not going to get in there. Well, I'm the Messiah. Praise God. Now I'm going to switch up the program. I'm going to do some different things. Not going to happen. He is going to do what he said. That's how solid he is. Now, with that, let me, let me go just a little bit further to conclude Isaiah 28. Um, he comes back, he says, um, verse 19, As often as it passes through, it will seize you. From morning to morning it will pass through any time during the day or night. It will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch. The blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim. He will be stirred in the valley of Gibeon to do the, his task, his unusual task, and work his work, his extraordinary work. Now, do not be as scoffers. Let your fetters be made stronger, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Let me explain to you what is being said here. When that chief cornerstone gets set where it's supposed to be set, all of the other opposition, all of those that would have a different reference, all of those that were speaking falsehood and lies, guess what? They're all going away. They will not survive. And we're really talking about, we're talking about what will lead to the day of the Lord. 
that the day of the Lord, part of what the day of the Lord is, is the Messiah coming back to establish his kingdom. He's the chief cornerstone. We're going to build from him. And that all the other things are going to go away. All the other people that were advancing those arguments are going to go away. It's going to be decisive. And it will be judgment and destruction on all of those things that were. Now, having laid out that this is a, this is a profound statement about how the Messiah is a contrast to the world and how the world is subject to judgment from him. And by the way, uh, to coin a phrase uh, from, um, from our, our president at the moment, uh, you've heard the phrase where he's coming to office, he's trying to quote, drain the swamp, you know, in Washington, D.C. Uh, when the Messiah comes back, not only is he going to take the swamp out, he's going to take out the forest, he's going to take everything out going to take it all out. And, but it's that same context. I'm going to clean things up. The, we know for sure the Messiah will do that. Now, with all of that in the background, let's go back again to see what is Peter saying to us when he says this. And this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Uh, let me give you a further definition of the word disappointed. You'll not be put to shame. And if you're not put to shame, what's that mean? You're going to be honored. When this results, it will come as honor for you. This precious value then is for you who believe. But to those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected... This became the very cornerstone. There he's now speaking again. The stone for us builds up. The stone for the unbeliever, it is, leads to his destruction. That stone is set and crushes what they've tried to set up at odds with the Lord. Verse 8, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know, the world doesn't get it about the Messiah. The work of his redemption. They don't even get it about him being the creator. Nor will they get it when he comes to restore all things. They are going to stumble over this. And this is going to be perplexing and confusing to them. Their definition of the world has excluded him. Our definition of the world is about him and includes him. And that's the sharp contrast that's being made. With that said, verse 9 he says, But you... And again, he's talking to Gentile believers here. But you, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, we know he's specifically talking about Gentiles because he says this. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, uh, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
So what exactly is he really saying here? If he's talking to Gentile believers, why would he say to them, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions? You do know that is the language that God used to describe Israel. This is what he promised to do for Israel if Israel would believe him and follow his commandments. This language goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. This was God's offer to them. If you'll be my people, I'll be your God. It goes all the way back to that wedding proposal. And he is now saying to the Gentile believers, you are part of that. You are the same people that they are. Now I know... And even in my messianic circles, uh, some people struggle with that. Um, some of my messianic Jewish brethren think they're exclusive. They think they have a unique calling, I'm using their words. And that Gentiles really are never going to be really a part of that. Even believing Gentiles are never really going to be a part of it. Um, what a conceited, self-centered statement being made by them it's ridiculous if they would just step back for a moment they would learn that God's definition of who he's dealing with are Hebrews not just Jews and I don't say that with rancor toward my Jewish brethren I am one I'm speaking the truth and if we get caught up in ourselves to such an extent then we will make great errors. And by the way, this air of self-centeredness and self-conceit um, is, I see it being done by all kinds of ethnic groups. You know, the Jews aren't just a, exclusive to that. You can run through the world and find all kinds of ethnic groups that play that same game. In an effort to have value in their lives, they overestimate, they overvalue themselves to the harm of everybody else. And all it does is produce conflict. That's all it does. And we call it racial bigotry um, in all of its many forms. And essentially, we, here is Peter telling the Gentiles, you're part of Israel. And one of the biggest things that we have to teach in the Messianic movement, as we share with the brethren, that you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. You are one of the chosen people. That we're all Hebrews. We're all broken branches grafted back in. Well, you might be a wild branch and I might be a natural branch, but we still put out olives from the, from the same root. We're, we all belong. We belong where? In here. This is what God purposed and intended. It was his stated goal from the very beginning that in Abraham's seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. He didn't say just your family, meaning your biological family. He said all the families of the earth. Now the question is, how in the world could he pull that off? Well, it's real simple. He sent the Messiah to do the work of redemption for whosoever would believe. And it had nothing to do with biology or, quote, DNA or any of that other stuff. And so here's Peter 
profoundly saying to the Gentile believers, you are part of this. He has taken you out of darkness and put you into the marvelous light. You once were called not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you have, did not have mercy before, but now you have received mercy. Um, my friends, I, I wish, and I believe this is essential to maturing in the messianic faith. You've got to stop seeing yourself as something separate from Israel, something separate from Abraham, separate from the covenants. They belong to you. Personally, intimately, by your name, they belong to you. And so when the scripture talks about the work of the priesthood and the appointed times of the Lord, those are your appointed times. They're not Jewish feasts. They're biblical feasts. Who are they intended for? For the Hebrew people. Not only the native born, but for the alien sojourner who wants to believe in the same God. If you believe in the God of Israel, then the Sabbath belongs to you. The keeping of Passover, the story of redemption, belongs to you. You're supposed to keep it. You're supposed to count the Omer and observe the Feast of Weeks. You're to observe trumpets and atonement and join the camp at tabernacles. This is about you. And oh, by the way, when the Messiah, who is the God of Israel, decides to come back and clean this mess up called the world, he sees you as belonging to Israel and belonging to him. When decisive destruction comes, he's coming to save you. A lot of theologians and a lot of religious men would love to have these definitions I'm talking about just get thrown away. They want to make new definitions. Oh, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, God used to deal with Israel, but now God's economy, I love that theological word, God's economy is now working with the church. Bullpucky. God is still working with the same group of people he was working at with before Abraham and his descendants. It's just that the family's growing. And we have a lot that are adopted in. But every one of you have been chosen by God by name. And so there is no stepchild. There is no second class citizen in the kingdom. The Gentile believer is not something less than a Jewish believer, which is malarkey. We're all part of this. And by the way, the guy that's saying this, are you ready, is the apostle to the Jews, should there be any question about it. He's including the Gentiles right along with his brethren. All right. I hope this was encouraging to you, edifying in your faith. Lord bless you. Shabbat shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing.
خونه bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom.